0: I think I'm turned on here, here we go, all right, good, 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 hello everyone, hey open up your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we're going to be looking at chapter 1 again today, we should finish out chapter 1 today, unless something really radical happens, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, before we begin let's go ahead and start out with a word of prayer. Lord and God, uh, right now we come before you, and um, Lord, we're about to, to dig into your word. And so God, I ask you to prepare us heart and mind right now to hear, to receive, to apply to our lives. Father, we want to be different people because of the things we're, we're hearing, thinking about, and talking about. Master, if any of our spirits are inattentive right now, I pray that you would wake us up, call us to alert and attention, help us to dig in, to dive into this word, and Lord, to uh, make it fruitful for our lives. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the fellowship of believers. And, uh, and Lord, we want to lift up right now this body. Help us to understand and perceive you. It's in your holy name we pray, Father. Amen. But well, Before we get going, just a quick prayer announcement, just for kind of your, your individual prayer time. Um, if you've not been paying attention to the news, you might. Well, the news never almost reports on this. But Western Africa right now has been really rough on, uh, on Christians. Uh, there was a, another decapitation this past week of a, a pastor um, particularly uh, in, like, Nigeria and Burkina Faso, areas like that. So be praying for your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ uh, overseas who uh, you know, their, their toughest decision today was not to get out of bed. Their toughest decision was, am I willing to die for Christ? And probably some of them will before the day's done. So be praying for that group. Um, just keep that in your prayers on a regular basis. Well, Last week as we got together, we talked about problems. Uh, and... Uh, If you were with us, I I told you this last week, and I want you to remember this. When you think of the Corinthian church, when you hear the word Corinthian or Corinthians, I want you to think of one word, and that word is? Hey, good, some of you guys listened last week, fantastic. Problems, the Corinthian church was riddled with problems, and, and the reason that they were riddled with problems is so many of us who were also living lives riddled with problems could apply this stuff to our lives. So as we're dipping into week two, remember that from last week. I want you to also remember, Paul started the church at Corinth. The guy who's writing this letter, 2 Corinthians, he started this church. And for a year and a half, he spent time with them discipling the believers there at Corinth. And you remember, I I told you, he went away from that church for a while. And he was working with other churches. And he hears a report that they're doing very poorly. And so he sends uh, one of his co-workers, a guy by the name of Titus, to go check out what's going on in the church at Corinth. Well... He, he doesn't hear back, and so he, eventually he's, he's, he has to make kind of this visit to the church and, and rebuke them in the process of things. And he doesn't hear back, he doesn't hear back, he doesn't hear back from Titus. Finally, he loses uh, all capacity to restrain himself. He goes to Macedonia, and there he connects with his fellow worker, Titus. Titus tells him the church has got it together. And, and you remember, as we talked about this last week, I said, with qualifications, right? The church has it together, but they still have problems, Well, today we're going to start addressing some of those problems. This is why Paul is writing this letter to uh, the Corinthian church. It's to address their problems and to remind them that what Paul has done with them is all about his love for them. All right, um, why were people criticizing Paul in the church? It turns out that there's this kind of small minority of people still in the church at Corinth, who even though Paul started the church, even though Paul went out of his way to come visit them and kind of set things right with them, they still held that Paul was uh, maybe not liking them very much. Maybe Paul has the wrong motivations. Maybe Paul is just mean. And so they they use criticism. I don't know if you guys have found this in your life. Um, if you want to hate somebody, you can always find a reason. You with me? If your desire is to not like people, you can always find something to plug in to go, and here's why I don't like that person. This was happening with the Corinthian church. As we address this topic today, we're talking about Christians dealing with other Christians. Paul is a Christian. He's dealing with Christians in the church at Corinth, but there are many Christians who are not acting like Christians. All right, so as you're looking at this, here's what I want you to think as we're going through our whole discussion today. I want you to get in mind some people you know that call themselves Christian, Maybe they would self-describe as a Christian. But they're really not practicing it. Like if they died tomorrow and you were asked, are they with Jesus? You'd be going, I don't know. Okay, so get in mind people who kind of fit that category. Right? And I want you to actually get faces in mind. Can you just visualize that really quickly? Just get a few faces of people who fit that paradigm. This is Paul talking to the church at Corinth. He's talking to Christians, other believers, many of whom have kind of wandered a little bit And he's discussing what love looks like between uh, a believer and those types of people. All right, let's begin with uh, why people were upset at Paul. I just want to mention this really quickly. Number one, people were saying that Paul was fickle. What a weird criticism. You're a fickle individual. Here's what they meant by that. Paul changes plans. And because Paul changes plans, you can't trust what Paul says. So they said Paul's fickle. They'll address that in chapter one. We'll talk about that today. Some said Paul was weak. So there's this minority of people that are, are talking about Paul, and they're like, he's not very strong. He's not a, not a real tough guy when it comes to delivering. They said he was not a good orator. Couldn't speak very well. They said uh, Paul was preaching for wealth. Some said Paul was not a real apostle. Some said Paul was not an Orthodox Jew, and therefore, because he's not accepted by certain Categories of the, the Pharisees among Judaism that he should not be listened to by the Corinthian church. Some people said he had no direct word from God. So these are the criticisms that Paul's going to deal with during uh, today's discussion. I want to talk about a love that exceeds human wisdom. Look at verse 12, chapter 1, verse 12. A love that exceeds human wisdom. This is our proud confidence. Our conscience testifies. That we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you—this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church—we've conducted ourselves toward you with pure motives and godly sincerity, not in human wisdom. Let me repeat that: not in human wisdom. One more time with me: not in human wisdom, but by but in grace of or in the grace of God, not in human wisdom, but in the grace of God. Uh, that word, worldly or human. In, in, uh, in your biblical text that describes wisdom that word underline that the word in Greek is sarkikos it comes from the, the root word sarx um, you guys ever heard of a sarcophagus okay sarcophagus we stow bodies in there that's from the, the two root words sarx which means flesh and phagos eater it's a flesh eater alright so when you put someone in a sarcophagus you're putting them in the flesh eater that's what that word literally means well, he, he says here, he says worldly wisdom, and when he says worldly, he says sarks. In other words, flesh wisdom, wisdom of the flesh. And Paul does not think too highly of fleshly wisdom. As he's talking about flesh wisdom, he's saying basically this. There's a, there's a kind of wisdom, a thing that makes sense for human beings, and then there's godly wisdom. And if you were of fleshly wisdom, you're in the wrong place. So as Paul talks to this church, he says, look, I want to talk to you about love and what real love looks like. And I'm afraid some of you might be measuring me. Paul, I'm afraid some of you might be measuring me based on Sark's wisdom, on worldly standards. You might think that I don't love you because of the way I have approached you. And I want you to know that that's not the case. So Paul begins to spell out for them what real love looks like. Why is Paul so defensive here? Well, the reason is Paul has been under attack by members of this church. Paul's been criticized for uh, having hostile intentions. Hostile intentions. Look at verse 12. This is our proud confidence. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you, with pure motives and godly sincerity. Now, what would the opposite of that be? Impure motives and with insincerity. Read between the lines. When you start reading one of the, the, the Bible uh, speakers, right, an author in the Scriptures, and they are kind of seem, they seem to be on the defensive. They're usually responding to something. And so there were people who were saying, "Look, Paul's not sincere. Paul's out to get us. He's not there for the good of us." So he was criticized for having hostile intentions. Paul was criticized for being passive aggressive. Any you know passive aggressive people? Do you live with passive aggressive people? They won't tell you the dishes need done. Instead, they just, you know, huff and puff as they're doing dishes. Come on, some of you are that, right? Yeah? Um, I get in trouble with with passive-aggressive people periodically. Uh, And I don't don't know if you've you've ever had that instance where you're, you're texting someone and the text gets interpreted the wrong way. There are some people I always feel like I'm walking on a minefield when I, when I approach them because it's, it seems like everything you say can set them off. Don't be those people. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, please don't be those people. <laughs> right, but I, I have to do something every time I text, and if you get texts from me, um, you can feel free to laugh at me for this. I finish everything I do with a little smiley face. Not because I'm an 11 year old girl even though I feel like an 11, 11-year-old 11 girl, I, and a little bit of my masculinity dies every time I do that. Uh, the reason I do that is because I've had instances where I tried to communicate something to somebody and they assumed the worst about what I was saying. Paul's saying here, when I speak to you in these texts, when I'm talking to you, I'm not doing it in a way where I'm subtly trying to jab at you. I don't read more into this message than just what I'm saying. I'm speaking directly to you. I care about you. Uh, Look at uh, verse 13 here. For what we write uh, to you, or for we write to you nothing other than what you read and understand. In other words, this is not passive aggressive. There's no double meaning in what we're saying. And I hope you will understand until the end, just as you have already partially understood us, that you can be proud of us just as we are of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, this is nothing but love that I'm throwing your way. I'm not trying to take a stab at you with what I'm about to say because Paul's about to say some things that, to be honest, get a little uncomfortable. Some criticize him for being passive-aggressive, having hostile con, uh, intentions for them. Uh, some criticized him for being indecisive. Uh, you have to have a little context, a little background to understand this next criticism. Okay, so here's the deal. We, we said that Paul went and he had this rough meeting with him, this meeting that he called the painful visit. Um, And then he said to them that it was his desire to come back and visit with them again, to come back and spend time with the church. But here's the deal. He didn't. He wasn't able to. And so there were some people in the church and they were literally saying, Paul changed his travel plans. He said he was going to come back here and he didn't. Paul cannot be trusted. Just as you can't trust him to show up when he says, you also can't trust it when he preaches the gospel. He flip-flops. So... Just think about what this feels like to be Paul. Here's a guy who's been beaten up for the cause of Christ, literally, so many times, who's been stoned, who's been you know, beaten with rods. He's had his feet put in the stocks and hit with rods. He's spent time in prison. He's been chased from town to town. He's starving and going without food at different times and places. And here's a church that goes, we can't trust you. You change your plans. Can you imagine what that feels like? And so Paul's responding to these people and he's, look, look, I I care about you. I'm not trying to be wicked toward you. I'm not trying to be malevolent by not showing up. I wanted to come and show up, but you might notice the church is bigger than your immediate congregation. And so Paul's trying to express that to them. Is Paul's approach to the Corinthian church unloving? Well, is it? No. I hope that you see that. I hope that you understand that. But look, if, I mean, if you're just looking at it from the outside, if you're looking at it using the lenses of our culture, you might say, yes, Paul clearly doesn't love the church. And, and why? Because he makes people uncomfortable, and you just don't do that. You don't make people uncomfortable. What do you think of when you hear the word love? Uh, for me, un- un- unbidden, many songs come to mind right away, because I don't know if you notice this or not, but the music industry likes to talk about it. Um, And here's the thing. There are some words that are powerful, that are meaningful in the Christian paradigm, and they've been used so much and so many times in the wrong context that they're perverted beyond their actual meaning. They're twisted. It's the job of a disciple sometimes to take words and recapture them and and understand them in context according to God's paradigm and not according to the paradigm of the world. Uh, Let me just mention three of them really quickly. These are important words for Christians that have been twisted beyond recognition. Faith. Hope, love. Do you think that's by accident? No. I want to talk about love really quickly. Uh, Van Halen uh, wrote a song, "When It's Love." I don't know if you guys remember this one or not. Updating <laughs> myself a little bit by even mentioning Van Halen, but uh, here's here's what the, the words say. Um, oh, how do we know when it's love? I can't tell you, but it lasts forever. How will it, will it feel when it's love? It's just something you feel together when it's love. <laughs> it should be beyond hokey to even hear something like that, but this is, this is what culturally infuses us on a regular basis. A lot of weird conceptions about love. Uh, interesting side note, David Lee Roth never married. He's one of the, one of the lead singers for Van Halen. Never married uh, because he said in his own words, he found out you didn't have to. And instead, he focused on acquiring more experiences, by which he meant hedonistic endeavors. He just wanted to do what he wanted to do. David Lee Roth lives happily right now with his dog. How do you know when it's love? (laughs) Between Alex and Eddie Van Halen and Sammy Hagar, there are seven marriages between them. I can't tell you, but it'll last forever. Or not. Now, I'm not just trying to trash on people in the entertainment industry. Um, it's not my, my goal to just shred on them. I just want to say this. Sometimes we take advice from the worst possible people to get advice from. Sometimes we accept definitions that the world hands us without being critical of them. And that's dangerous. And you might be thinking to yourself, but look, Ben, I'm not so foolish as to be informed by pop cultural views. False. I can guarantee you that you are informed by the culture in which you dwell. It's like, uh, it's like saying, I swim in the sewer... But believe me, I don't stink. No, you do. In fact, I can prove it to you. I can prove to you that you are impacted by the culture. Do do any of you have kids or grandkids under the age of 10? Let me say two words to you, and let's see whether or not the culture has impacted you. Baby shark. And for those of you who are like, I have no idea what he's talking about, if you decide to look it up on Google today... Let me tell you, there are some doors you open that cannot be closed. <laughs> it is, it's a song that burrows into your head and lays eggs. It's atrocious. Some of you will hate me for the rest of the day because I even mentioned that. Um, by worldly, by fleshly love, Paul is, Paul is criticizing a certain perspective. He's saying, look, there, there are people who might be analyzing me and saying, I don't love because I don't make you feel good because my interactions with you have not always felt nice. Is it the case that that is not love? Does making people uncomfortable mean that you don't love them? If only we had some objective source that could could feed into this discussion, that could teach us along these lines. If only there were a God of the universe who created us and created the whole concept of love and is even identified as love, who maybe spoke to this issue. Oh wait, there is. That God has spoken. That God has defined love, and it is by that standard that we understand love. Let's look at what Paul does with love as he tries to explain to the church what's going on. Love does hard things. Would you say that with me? Love does hard things. Love is not what we feel. Did you hear me, teenagers? Love is not what we... Right on. Love is not what we feel. Feelings are fickle and flighty. They change. I don't know if you noticed, but some of your opinions have changed over the last decade, two decades, three decades. You probably don't feel the same way you did before. Feelings change. Feelings are also not facts. That is, they may not reflect reality. Have any of you married couples ever woken from a dream only to start immediately accusing your spouse of something they totally didn't do? (laughs) Who is so-and-so? What's in your your name whoever? And you're like, I have no idea. Well, in my dream, that wasn't me. Your feelings don't reflect reality. And sometimes that happens with all of us. I hope you identified that as part of your experience. How many of you have ever been misled by your feelings? Show of hands. Some of you are not raising your hands. You're liars. Or you're not paying attention. All of us have been misled by our feelings. If you haven't, you're not paying attention. All right. All right. Feelings and love can exist exclusively. This is a truth of reality that I want you to understand. Feelings and love can exist exclusively. That means they can exist without any overlap between the two. You can love and not feel something towards someone. You can love and not feel something towards someone. You can feel something towards someone and not love them. Amen? Some of you are like, I don't don't agree with that. I I work with teenagers. I've been working with teenagers for almost 20 years in the church. I know when people have feelings. And I know people who think they fell in love. Quite a few people. Uh, and you see it happen over and over and over again. They're like, oh, I'm having these emotions. And my, my heart's all a flutter, And, and, and my, my belly feels all warm and fuzzy. And that's how I know I'm in love. And they try to talk to their parents about it, or they keep it hidden from their parents and talk to their friends about it. And I'm in love. And you know how you can tell? Because of the way I feel. And, and, they, and they go on and on ad nauseum, literally ad nauseum. Makes you want to be sick. <laughs> Amen, adults? Amen. All right. Um, And the thing is, is like they act on those feelings and then what you find out is three, four weeks later they're like, apparently my feelings were not matching with reality. I thought I was in love, but turns out I'm not. Turns out he doesn't like me. Turns out she hates me. Whatever. Feelings and love should not be confused with one another. Um, Love is a choice and a discipline. I said this last week. I really want you to retain this. If you take nothing else away from today, take this away. Love is a choice we make and a discipline we engage in. It's a choice we make and a discipline we engage in. John chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus says this, no greater love has a man than this, but that he lays down his life for another. What does real love look like? It looks like jumping in front of the gun and taking the bullet. Laying down your life for someone. That's what real love looks like. Do you feel like doing that? Is that a feeling-based thing? Or is that when you set all of your feelings aside and do the hard thing? That's what real love is. And we see this in the person of Jesus. Look at what Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would hardly die for righteous man, though for a good man, one might dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this: that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When did Christ die for you? When did he show up in your life and meet with you? Was it when you were flawless and perfect? Was it when you'd spent time in front of the mirror and gotten everything just right? Or was it when you were at your absolute worst? Christ intercedes in our life. The love of Christ shows up in our lives when we are his enemies, when we've set ourselves against him. Christ died for the ungodly in that moment. Consider Jesus words in Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 verse 43 through 48. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's Sark's wisdom right there. That's flesh wisdom. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Everybody does that. It's natural. But we're not called to the natural. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because you feel like it? No, because you're supposed to make the choice. Because you're supposed to do the difficult thing, the discipline of love. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's this disciplined, difficult, tough love that we're called to. It's not natural. It's not natural. It's not unnatural. It's supernatural, amen? Amen. We have been called to be like God, to love as he loves. Love is more important than a number of things, and I want you to take this to heart. Remember, I'm talking about, and Paul's talking about here, Christians approaching other Christians about issues. I, I told you, remember, get that person in mind that you know they call themselves a Christian, but they're not living it. Love is more important than our comfort i hate church discipline i hate going and talking to people about things they're doing wrong i despise it it's the worst part of the ministry experience for me but i do it and i do it because i love people it is uncomfortable every time i, I said this to the first service i didn't mean it if i ever get cozy going to talk to somebody about their sin issues i'm probably leaving the ministry because it's uncomfortable Real love is more important than your comfort. It's more important than how you feel. Uh, difficult things are required of you if you love the way God loves. Real love, require, or actual love, genuine love, is more important than not just our comfort. It's more important than the comfort of people we talk to. Get in mind the people you know who are outside of Christ, but again, call themselves Christians. People you probably should have said something to you still should be saying something to, get get in mind that individual, visualize them. And I want you to visualize holding their hand, not like this, I want you to visualize like interlocking fingers, like really close and neat and tight. You got that visual? Now I want you to visualize walking through this life with them and walking them up to the gates of hell and then saying goodbye. Aren't you glad we didn't make things awkward? We could have had a conversation and I'm so glad that I didn't make you uncomfortable. Do you think they'd thank you for that? Do you think they'd look at you and say, I, I'm glad it didn't get awkward too. I'll spend eternity apart from you and God now. Thanks. Real love is more important than our comfort. It's more important than the comfort of those we need to love. Genuine love is more important than our family. Uh, I was getting uh, my tattoo done and and my poor tattoo artist had to sit for like four, five, six hours at a time with me and talk about Christian apologetics and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, But in the midst of that, I would ask him questions about life and and things in his experience. And and, uh, I asked him, I said, like, what's a popular tattoo right now? And he said, a lot of people like to get this tattoo that says family first, family first. And it makes sense, right? seems moral and good. It's like it's a good ideology, right? Family first. Who doesn't want to promote their family and and advance their family? If that's your ethical height, if that's the best thing you aspire to, understand this, there's virtually no animal in the animal kingdom that doesn't have that as a priority set. Like, you're elevated to the dog in terms of your priority set. There are very few animals that will feed on their own young or not defend their own young. If that is what you consider the apex of morality, you're morally stunted. Family first. Can I ask you this? Do you have people in your family who need to hear difficult truths? And that be held back because they're family? And we don't want things to get weird at Thanksgiving. We don't want things to get weird around the dinner table. That's uncomfortable. Jesus had to address this issue. See, Jesus knew that like, when he was preaching to an audience, when he spoke to an audience, some of the people in that audience were going to pay a serious price for following him. So he, he tells them about discipleship and what it looks like to follow him. And then he some, some people, like think about this, the Jews who heard what he said and went, I accept you as Messiah, you're my Lord, I will follow you. For many of them, they would go home to their families and they'd say, look, I found Messiah, I found the Christ. And their family would be like, you're you're a fool, you're not my son, you're not my daughter, and they would sever that relationship. And for many Jewish people, as it is for many of us, family means so much that we think, God, I know you don't want me to hurt my family, Lord, I know you want me to follow you, but what happens when those things come into conflict? Jesus spelled it out, and if you don't understand this passage, you do not understand what it's like to be a disciple of Christ. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus spells it out, and he had to do it harshly so that you and I would take note. Listen to this passage, verse 34 through 37 of Matthew 10. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He had to set forth that priority set so that people knew the right decision to make. Right now, there are people around this world who are paying that price. There will be people today who, because they've got a Muslim family and have turned to Christ, are being hunted right now and maybe put to death because they have decided not to follow Islam. That's a real price that some people have to pay. Do you pay that in your life? Do you love the people in your family more than you love Jesus Christ? Or do you love Jesus Christ and his word more than you love your family? Genuine love is more important than our comfort. It's more important than their comfort. It's more important than our family. It's more important than our social reputation. I don't wanna go into too much detail here. Let me just say this. I have encountered recently a lot of Christians who are perfectly willing to sell out and kick and beat down on other Christians to try to earn the favor of the world. Oh, they're passionate. They're passionate enough to confront another Christian, but it's only to show the world how much we're like them. Look at how much I resemble you. Look at how much we're like. And, and oh, please, give me your favor, world. And the world, meanwhile, looks at you and goes, I hate all of you. If you're going to be calling out other Christians, it had better be for something that the scriptures talk about, discuss, and deal with if you're just trying to set up a pretense of morality so that everyone will look at you and think what a good person you are, you're not in the right place. Amen? John 15, verse 18 through 20. Real love is it's bigger than our social reputation. Jesus said this, if the world hates you, you, know that it hated me before it hated you. That's pretty harsh. Yeah. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Christians, there's a problem when the world's looking at you going, hey, we share the same morality set. You're in the wrong place. Our... Real love, genuine love, is more important than our friendships. Um, I I have uh, one of my youth sponsors from Northern Hills. Uh, She's an amazing gal. The teens love her. Uh, If you would go back to when she was in college, she would not talk to me. She hated me. She would tell you she hated me. Um, One of the other ministers at Northern Hills and I confronted her frequently on issues of morality. And she was trying to live the wrong way, and we weren't letting her. Uh, and we kept becoming an obstacle for her. And she would she would tell you to this day, she loathed me during that time. We were at CIY a few years ago, might have been this past summer, at a Christ and Youth Conference. And she was praying, and uh, she was praying over me. And she said something amazing. It, it broke me for the right reason. She said, I praise you, God, that Ben loves me, loved me more than my friendship. I praise you, God, that Ben loved me more than my friendship. I was willing to ostracize her as a friend in order to keep her as a sister in Christ. And she turned her life around. She has become something absolutely amazing. I wish I could tell you, I wish I could tell you that was my experience with most of the believers I know who've wandered from the faith, but it is not. There are so many that I pursue. There are people, I tried texting one this morning, won't return a phone call, who never want to hear from me. And the reason is that they know what that conversation will look like. I can't control a lot of that. But here's what I know. I'm going to show up before the judge one day. I will show up before the God of this universe and I will give an account for my life and I want my hands to be clean. I don't want to reach a point where I stand before God and have to say, ah, it was too uncomfortable. Practicing genuine love is complex. This is the last thing i want to point out that paul really teaches us through this passage practicing genuine love is complex do you guys remember when you really fell for somebody the first time and you're like oh maybe this is the one and you're excited and you're interested and you're enthralled and you talk about it and you think this is it this is love And then like six months later, things are getting more serious. You're like, well, that was like puppy love before, but now now it's real. And then you get engaged. You're like, oh, man, now we've got commitment. This is really real. And then you get married, and you're like, we spent so much money. Now we know it's real. (laughs) And then five years after marriage, ten years after marriage, as the years progress, you're like, I live with this person now. I know how obnoxious they can be. This is what love looks like. The reason this is happening, and I hope that this is the story of everybody's relationships in this room, you should be increasing in love for one another because love is a discipline and a choice. And the more we practice it, the better at it we get. Your marriage should look like that. Practicing genuine love is complex. It's difficult. It requires hard things. The gospel is so simple. The good news message is so simple that I can explain it to a four-year-old. I can explain it to a four-year-old. A child can get it, but listen to me. A child cannot master it. Christ called us to have a childlike faith, not a childish faith. You are called to know Christ and then to develop, to become something more. And that should definitely be the case when it comes to an issue like love. Paul explains to the church what he's about. Look at, look at this. Uh, let's look at verse 17 and 18. Paul says genuine love is faithful and consistent. It's faithful and consistent. This is Paul. So then, was I indecisive or capricious when I was planning this? That is, that visit. Were the things I plan do I plan in a self-serving way, like a worldly man, like a Sark's man, a flesh man, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But listen, this listen to this. But God is faithful and means what he says. Our message to you is not yes and no at the same time. In other words, when I speak to you, I'm speaking out of faith in you, confidence in you. I'm not speaking out of both sides of my mouth. I really care about you. God is faithful. God is consistent. And Paul says, we too... Paul, Titus, Timothy, these guys who have been ministering to the church, we are faithful to you. We're only doing this because we love you. We're only confronting you because we love you. We're only calling you out because we genuinely care. We are faithful and consistent. He details that in verse 19 through 22. I want to say this, and this is important. Paul teaches us that genuine love is shrewd. Everyone say shrewd. shrewd. Shrewd is a great word. that We just don't use it very often. But it's a really fantastic word. Shrewd means wise or cunning, careful. Uh, In Matthew chapter 10, we're told we're to be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves when dealing with non-believers. Shrewd, careful, cunning, crafty. Paul is this way. Paul leaves room for healing when he confronts the church at Corinth. He hammers them. He lays into them and he steps back and waits for them to begin digesting and improving. This is, this is complex love. This is shrewd love. This is carefully choosing what you're going to do. Um, let's imagine you're walking out of the building tonight. Right? So tonight. How about today? Based on the way I'm going, it might be tonight. I don't know. So let's imagine you're walking out of the building, and you trip, and you fall, and you, you cut up your knee. And it's, it's, like, really bad. You're like, oh, man, I know what to do with this. I had a first aid class once. And, and, and so you go to the bathroom, and you're like, okay, here we go. We got water. Uh, we got water. We got soap. We got antiseptic, we got bandages, we got triple antibiotic ointment, so you start in. I'm gonna scrub and scour that wound, ow, that hurts. And then you put a, uh, some antiseptic on it, and you keep scouring. And then you put some triple antibiotic ointment on, you're like, now, you know, band-aid goes on top and you're like, great, but it's not better yet, let's keep going. And so you rip it off and, and you start again, and you scrub it. And, and then you, you put antiseptic, and you put triple antibiotic ointment and, and then you put a bandage on it, and you're like, it's still not better. Let's keep going. And so you rip it off again, and, and you repeat, and you repeat, and you repeat. Will that wound ever heal? No. And what Paul's doing with the church is he says, look, guys, I've, I've confronted you. I told you what you ought to do, and I gave you some space. I stepped back a little bit. Just as treating a wound requires cleaning and treatment and a little space, so does dealing with discipline, with people you love. You to confront them and contend with them, but you step back at some stage of the game and let them participate in the process. Imagine a system where God shocked you every time you did something wrong. Wouldn't that be grand? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think many of us would like that, in a sense, because we we'd like that accountability, but life would be a living nightmare. And here's the deal. We wouldn't be participating in the process. You ever seen a, a, a helicopter parent? This is getting worse and worse in this generation, by the way. Helicopter parent's the parent who hovers over their kid and is constantly trying to make everything happen. We're a little bit this way, my wife and I. We try to moderate it. Um, helicopter parents have gotten so bad. Uh, I was in a session with our uh, foster care agency where they were saying that many mothers are actually uh, like putting together the, the uh, uh, job applications for their kids and showing up to interview with their own children. Can you imagine doing that interview? and <laughs> be like, get out. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's the degree to which they're trying to have oversight and control. Some of us would like, and it's, it's easy for us to think, man, that's what, a, that's what a good mother looks like, that's what a good father looks like, but that's not the case. A, a good parent gives their child space to begin growing and developing, and there has to be that opportunity for a kid to get it right on their own. That's shrewd, that's careful, that's wise parenting. That's what God is doing with us. That's what Paul is doing with the church at Corinth. Have a little space, grow, and do the right thing. Sometimes we forfeit that right to do the right thing, right? And that that right for freedom. Give me an amen. Yeah. I know. All right. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 24. Paul says this to the church. Not that we rule like dictators over your faith, but rather we work with you. Right? I'm not, we're not trying to make this happen on your behalf. We're working with you so that you might make it happen. Look, we work with you um, for the increase of your joy, for in your faith, you stand firm. Did you notice the pronouns there? Paul's talking to the church, and he's saying, this is your responsibility to get things right. We have loved you with a tough love, but it's still your responsibility to do and be the right thing. Tough love, or genuine love. Genuine love is tough. It is difficult. I mentioned this painful visit that Paul made. Chapter two, verse one, Paul says this. But I made up my mind not to grieve you with another painful visit. For if I cause you grief by a well-deserved rebuke, then who provides me with enjoyment but the very one whom I have made sad? Let me ask you a question. Who was that visit painful for, do you think? It's definitely painful for the Corinthians. But you'd be missing the mark if you didn't see that it was painful for Paul, too. He didn't enjoy this experience. Sin and the sinful mindset are like a cancer that has to be excised. It might seem like it's not compassionate to contend with it harshly, but it has to be dealt with harshly. To not do so would, would be would be cruel. It might see, seem compassionate in the short term, but in the long term... To avoid doing such kills the patient. Paul says, I have loved you with a difficult love because it's what you needed. Standing by and watching people destroy themselves is not compassionate. Embracing people who are doing the wrong thing is not godly. It's cruel, it's weak, it's soft, and it's sad. You've all been to Walmart and seen a, a child who is not parented well. Right? Right? Uh, where you just like, oh, my word, somebody, please engage in discipline. Because the parent looks at the child and thinks, I'll just give, and I'll give, and I'll reward, and I'll reward, and eventually that kid will be good. And in doing so, they create monsters. Right? Can you imagine going up and congratulating that parent with a kid screaming at them, buy me this video game, I hate you! And going up and being like, hey, you love your kids so much. <laughs> now, and by the same token, if we really love one another, we're going to call each other to the mat on hard things. Genuine love, disciplines. You might be thinking, oh, that's an unfair assessment, Ben. Just Shouldn't we just love everybody and good feelings toward everybody? And, and that's how people will change. Hebrews chapter 12, I want you to see the heart of God in this passage. Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews says this. And and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as son. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline... Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. What is righteousness? Teenagers, what's righteousness? Righteousness. Being right before God. Being right before God. It produces in us a harvest of righteousness, of being right before God. That's what discipline does for us. Notice, it also produces for us peace. We have a sense of peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. But this next phrase is pretty important. For those who have been trained by it. In other words, you can have all the love God wants to deliver to you. You can have all the discipline that God and the church delivers. And if you've decided you're not going to be trained by it, you're going to ignore it, then you miss out on righteousness. You miss out on peace. I love the next phrase, verse uh, 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Get tough. God loves you. Discipline is coming your way. If people love you, if you have anyone in in Christ who loves you, they will call you to task on issues that, that you need to contend with. Paul informs us that there is a love that exceeds human wisdom. It exceeds flesh wisdom, sarks. Paul informs us that real love does hard, hard things, does difficult things, even setting things like family and comfort on the back burner. Paul reminds us, and the Corinthians, that practicing genuine love is complex. It requires shrewdness, and carefulness to make sure that a person is repaired and recovered. Let's go to our master in prayer. God, I want to love as you love. Lord, it's our desire to be like you in all things, and you said that if we want to achieve righteousness before you, if we want peace, that Lord, we've got to be trained by our own discipline. And uh, Father, that we have to be um, discipliners of others. We've got to act like adults. We've got to do the difficult things, God. I pray that you help us to do that each and every day, even when it's painful, even when it's difficult. Father, I pray that there is someone in all of our lives who will treat us with that uh, that sort of dignity. Oh Lord Jesus, we love you. So, in your holy name, we pray, Father. Amen.